evidence and answers. Is this great country that we live in really a Christian nation? Have we gone so far away from His presence that one thing under God is no longer applicable? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Today, we're listening to another one of the exciting messages taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from around the nation. Our theme was, Can We Be Good Without God?, and featured keynote speakers, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Kirby Anderson presented an intriguing study entitled, One Nation Under God. Without delay, let's listen to part one as Kirby provides us with a biblical insight of this topic. This evening, I'm going to quote from sometimes British authors because when they look at us, they sometimes see us even better than we see ourselves. And one very famous quote that I put in the handout that you have here is from G.K. Chesterton. America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed. That creed is set forth with dogmatic and even theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence. And so there are some very significant things about the United States. And so I want to try to very quickly, in the interest of time, take us through a look at history, but to look at the ten things really every Christian should know. That's sort of the subtitle of the book that I'm using as the foundation for our presentation tonight. And the first one simply comes from Christopher Columbus, even before the founding of this country. And that is, one of the premises in the book is that Christopher Columbus was motivated by his Christian faith to sail to the New World. You know, I do a lot of radio, not only as an individual that interviews people, and I've interviewed Pat, and I've interviewed Dr. Land, but also many times I'm on a program being interviewed. And a while back, I remember on the Moody Broadcasting Network, somebody called in and said, you know, my daughter just came home from school, and she was told that Christopher Columbus brought slavery here, and they killed all sorts of individuals, and they were seeking only gold and all the rest. And I said, you know, you may not be able to convince your daughter of what I would say, but I would suggest, why don't you just encourage her to read a little bit of what Christopher Columbus said himself. And one of the things that you can find is, is that in his journal in 1492, remember that key date? Remember how we used to do that? Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1492. Okay. I've got just enough gray hair here that some of you remember this, okay? The young kids don't even know what we're talking about. But in his journal, he said, Let Christ rejoice on earth as he rejoices in heaven when he foresees coming to salvation so many souls of people hitherto lost. Let's be honest. Christopher Columbus didn't exactly know where he was going. He didn't know where he was when he got there. And he did it on borrowed money. Sounds like Congress. But anyway, nevertheless, he knew something, and that is these individuals have never heard the gospel, and certainly that was very significant in terms of his perspective. And each one of these chapters goes into this in much more detail, but I'm going to keep the train moving down the road and move to what I'll say is the second thing that every Christian should know, and that is that the pilgrims clearly stated that they came to the new world to glorify God and to advance the Christian faith. Now, if you're not familiar with the pilgrims, they were oftentimes referred to as the separatists, but they had a real desire to remove themselves from the persecution they faced, and for a while they lived in the Netherlands, but were concerned about even how that was affecting their own children, so they decided to actually establish a colony 
in the United States. Well, as they headed out in that particular direction, they were blown off course because they had a charter for what at that time was called Northern Virginia. Today we might call it New York, but uh, Virginia ran a little bit higher. There's some story about whether or not maybe even the sailors intentionally took them off course, but the bottom line is they eventually landed in an area that they did not have a charter for. They tried to sail south. They could not do so, so they decided to establish a colony there in Plymouth Colony. But, of course, they had no charter for this. So before they disembarked, they drafted what is called what? The Mayflower Compact. Now, if you look at the Mayflower Compact, you're struck by the fact that this begins with, in the name of God, amen, and it begins to now establish, if you will, in a sense, the first constitution of the new world. When I was at Georgetown University, my major professor referred to this as the first constitution of America. And even though he could not possibly have signed the doctrinal statement of this church, I think he was acknowledging that Christian ideas were important even in the establishment of, if you will, the first constitution in 1620. This is long before we had our own constitution, and I think it shows how significant it was. Let me for just a minute quote from another British commentator. Paul Johnson wrote a very good book, which I would highly recommend to you, A History of the American People, and Paul Johnson said this. What was remarkable about this particular contract was that it was not between a servant and a master, or a people and a king, but between a group of like-minded individuals and each other with God as a witness and symbolic co-signatory. This was essentially establishing what are the rules and regulations, what are the rights and responsibilities that we have one another as God is our witness. And that was very different, as we'll see in just a minute, and was one of the foundational principles long before we ever had the Declaration of Independence, long before we ever had the Constitution of the United States. Well, the third thing that every Christian should know, according to our series tonight, is that the Puritans created Bible-based commonwealths in order to practice a representative government that was modeled on their church covenants. Now, that raises a question that oftentimes I get at this point. A lot of people say, well, what's the difference between a pilgrim and a Puritan? Well, to make it fairly simple, a pilgrim is actually a group that were only later called pilgrims. They were known as the separatists. They were convinced that the Church of England was hopeless. They wanted to separate from the church. Perhaps you know some individuals that were in churches or denominations where maybe they just simply said the church or the denomination has gone too far afield and they decided to separate from that. And so those were the pilgrims. The Puritans, on the other hand, wanted to try to reform the church. They actually wanted to purify that. And perhaps you're familiar with individuals that have stayed within a church and fought for biblical truth or stayed within a denomination and fought for the biblical orthodoxy, and they were like those as well. But the point I'm making is, is that the Puritans, when they established the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and we can have all sorts of questions about some of the misdeeds and all the other things that they did, nevertheless give us a kind of a very important principle, and that is they began to establish what were called Puritan covenants. And in these, they actually began to write down what your rights might be. In England at that time, everything was pretty much an oral tradition. There's a problem with that. If you don't write down what your rights are, you're never really quite sure what those might be. Have you ever had a situation where maybe somebody promised you something, and then later on you said, well, you promised. And they look at you and go, no, I didn't. And if you didn't write it down, what? You know, it's you know, your word against the other person's word. 
And the idea of the Puritan covenants were that they wrote those down because they had these covenants in England. And so they began to anchor their liberties on the written page, which was a tradition taken from the Bible. For example, just to give you a few, matter of fact, tonight, if you uh, stay up a little bit later, and I know we're going to go pretty late, but if you want to, you can go maybe online, use a Google search, and look up the body of liberties. Because, you know, after all, Google knows all, right? So you'll find it right there. You'll find a 1641. Let's look at the date. 1641, there were 98 separate protections of individual rights. One was due process of law. Another one was equal protection under the law. That's a pretty novel concept. One was the idea of a trial by a jury of your peers. Look at that last one. A prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. You ever heard that before? That's the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. That is in 1641, long before we have the Bill of Rights. And so again, you can see how the Pilgrims and now the Puritans had such a profound influence in the founding of America. Well, let's look at one more, number four. This nation was also founded as a sanctuary for religious dissidents. A little bit later this evening, you're going to hear Dr. Richard Land talk about Roger Williams. And when he began to have questions about the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which I think, frankly, tried to bring together both ecclesiastical and civil authority. I'm talking about that tomorrow afternoon a little bit more. Then he established, of course, a charter for Rhode Island. And so you now had an opportunity for people to have different views. They come from a time where everybody had to be part of the Church of England. Now you have the opportunity for different kinds of religious expression. You can go to uh, Pennsylvania, William Penn. By the way, Pennsylvania is not named for William Penn. It's actually named for his father, a little footnote in history. And you can look that one up if you want to do a Google search. But even there in Pennsylvania, they had what was known as their founding doctrine and document known as the Concessions. And by 1680, they had 150 signers and provided all sorts of liberties that had never been seen before in Anglo-Saxon law. The point I'm making is you can see how important some of these Christian ideas were in the founding of America. But let's keep it moving a little bit longer because we'll go to the fifth thing that every Christian should know. This has to do about the issue of education. The education of the settlers and founders of America were uniquely Christian and Bible-based. So the education in the early colonies, and really up through the 18th century, were very profoundly Christian. As Pat alluded to just a minute ago, you can get in a lot of trouble today if you try to bring some of those Christian ideas in the public schools, but that's not the way it used to be. Let's take a good example. I had to show a picture there of the New England Primer. If you've ever seen a copy of the New England Primer, it's pretty intriguing because even as it's teaching something as basic as the ABCs, look how they were taught. In Adam A, in Adam's fall, we send all. B, heaven to find the B, Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. Even while teaching something as simple as the ABCs. Of course, this had many hymns and all sorts of other things that were part of that. And this was part of what was basic education in the early part of America. As a matter of fact, one of the most intriguing things is, is that in England, they certainly did emphasize some aspects of literacy, but in New England, they had a very strong emphasis on literacy. 
And if you've ever been, to, anybody ever been to Boston, ever walked the Freedom Trail? Okay, if you have, you know that it's just uh, after you've seen the uh, gravestone of Samuel Adams and uh, John Hancock, they have a little sign and it talks about the Old Deluder Act. And it was a law passed called the Old Deluder Act because it was intended to defeat Satan, the old deluder, who'd used illiteracy in the old world to keep people from re- reading the world. So the emphasis was that they wanted to educate everybody, give everybody the right to read and write so they could read the Bible for themselves and they would no longer be deluded by Satan himself. And so the main purpose of schools in Puritan New England was to teach children to read the Bible so they could read it itself. Sometimes I've seen quotes in which they said, the likelihood of finding someone who was illiterate in New England was like the likelihood of seeing a comet in the sky. Not very likely, because they wanted to emphasize how important it was to be able to read and write so that they could read God's Word for themselves. Pretty intriguing. Well, what about the universities? Harvard University was established, and if you have ever seen some of the laws and statutes, I've got copies of these in my files, but if you go to the laws and statutes of Harvard College in 1643, it specifically says on that very first cover page, past the cover page, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's pretty good, isn't it? I'm not sure people at Harvard necessarily hold to that today, although I do know Christian professors there at Harvard University, but look at that. That was what was actually required of students who would enter in to Harvard College. Well, let's look at my alma mater for just a minute, Yale College. Now, if you look at the regulations for Harvard College, it's not on the first page, but the second, but then you get to the requirements of a student at Yale College in 1745. This is what it was required if you were to be a student at Yale College. All scholars shall live religious, godly, and blameless lives according to the rules of God's Word, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures, the foundation of light and truth, and constantly attend upon all the duties of religion, both in public and secret. I don't know if you have any children or grandchildren that go to a Christian school, but that would be a great requirement for someone in a Christian school, and that was what was required of students who entered into Yale College in the 18th century. Isn't that amazing? Those are just a few examples. You can go through almost 150 different universities that at that time in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, well, almost at the 19th century, that interestingly enough had some kind of requirement that was similar to this, some better, some worse, some very strict, some very loose. But I think it illustrates again how important religious ideas were in the education of people in America. Well, that brings us up to the time near to the Revolutionary War, but preceding it, and that is the sixth thing that every Christian should know, is that a religious revival was the key factor in uniting the separate pre-Revolutionary War colonies. And that brings us to the story of what is known as the First Great Awakening. The first, of course, is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was part of a revival that actually sprang from his church. He said in 1734, it came through the church like a flash of lightning. Sadly, if anybody knows anything about Jonathan Edwards, they know him for one sermon. What's that? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. But there's a lot more to Jonathan Edwards. And again, I would encourage you to read a little bit more or even read one of the chapters in this book I've mentioned. But then also another individual, very significant in what happened before the Revolutionary War, was a man by the name of George Whitfield. 
born in England, came here, and actually began to preach revivals all up and down the eastern seaboard. Matter of fact, if you've ever been to a crusade, even like a, we just mentioned Billy Graham in a minute ago, Billy Graham crusade, and you'd seen one of the George Whitfield crusades, it would look very similar in terms of all that. He used a fair amount of marketing and all the rest. But one of the things that was so significant is, is as he began to preach, a lot of individuals for the first time began to feel unified. Because up until that time, if you were a colony in, say, Georgia, you're related back to England. If you were a colony, say, in Massachusetts, you're related back to England. But now they began to see themselves as 13 unified colonies, and that was very significant in one of the steps that ultimately led to the Revolutionary War. I quoted uh, Paul Johnson just a minute ago. He said he was convinced, first of all, that the Great Awakening may have touched as many as three out of every four American colonies. That's an awakening, isn't it? You know, we pray for revival, and if we have a few people come forward, we're really excited about that. But can you imagine being part of a revival, this first great awakening, where three out of four individuals were personally touched by that? But more importantly, Paul Johnson also points out in his book that he is convinced that the great awakening sounded the death knell of British colonialism. It was the first great awakening that maybe even established some of the foundation that gave us the American Revolution. Which leads us to our seventh thing that every Christian should know. Those of you that have listened to us on radio this week, we talked a little bit about this. And that is that many of the clergy in the American colonies, members of the black regiment, preached liberty. They were referred to, the various individuals that stood in the pulpits in the 18th century were referred to as the black regiment because what? They had black robes. And they were oftentimes described as some of the greatest enemies of the crown because they would preach about liberty. There was a boldness from the pulpits that was very significant. But don't take my word for it. Let's take the word for it of John Adams. Who was John Adams? Well, he was the first person to serve as a vice president and later was our second president. Then he had a son that later became a president. He was the first of two individuals who had a son after being president who was also a president, interestingly enough. And in a very important letter, or actually maybe essay would be a better word for it, in 1818, he began to explain what he believed was necessary for the American Revolution. And one famous quote is where he said the revolution was effected, we would today say affected, before the war commenced. The revolution was in the mind and the hearts of the people and change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. And so in this very interesting essay known as The Meaning of the American Revolution in 1818, he wanted to sort of set forth what it was that led to the American Revolution. And it's interestingly enough, he listed those men most responsible for the revival of American principles that led to the American Revolution. Now let's do this as a thought experiment. Let's tomorrow assume that we could go down to University of Hawaii and we'll talk to professors of history or government and let's ask them, who would you think would be the most important men who were those that led to the American Revolution? What answers do you think you might get? Well, maybe Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. They might mention George Washington. I don't know that they would. They might think of a few others, but I'll guarantee you they probably would not mention the names that were listed by John Adams. 
He said two men that he thought were most significant were Jonathan Mayhew and Dr. Cooper. Now, unless you have really done your history, you're going to say, who in the world are these individuals? Here is a man who was there in Boston. Here is a man who was in the courts defending this. Here is a man who was actually instrumental in helping to draft the Declaration of Independence. Here is a man who served as our first vice president, later as our second president, and who had a son who was also president. He mentions two people that I suspect most of you have never even heard of. Well, who are they? Well, first of all, Jonathan Mayhew actually died before the Revolutionary War, but he actually wrote a very important essay and sermon. He first delivered it as a sermon, and then it actually developed into a reprinted sermon that became kind of an essay, and it was on the issue of civil disobedience. He asked the question, is there ever a time when a Christian should disobey government? It's a good question. Well, are there examples? We can think of maybe Moses and the Hebrew midwives. Remember that story? You can maybe think of, certainly in the book of Daniel, Daniel himself, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can you think of some of those examples? Even in the New Testament, Acts 5.29, where they, the disciples say, we will obey God rather than men when they were told not to witness. So his reprinted sermon, you know, they didn't have CDs back in those days. So when you would deliver a sermon, then they would reprint the sermon, and those reprinted sermons would be then scattered everywhere. Recently, I had a chance to preach in the church where Jonathan Edwards attended when he was a student at Yale, and they asked me to do the same thing that church has been doing for more than 200 years, and that is to write out my sermon, and after it was done, those reprinted sermons were available in the 21st century, just like they were in the 18th century. And so many people were very profoundly influenced by Jonathan Mayhew. Another one would be Dr. Samuel Cooper, minister of Battle Street Church. Some of the individuals in his church actually fought at Bunker Hill. Some of them defended at Lexington and Concord. Some of them were involved in all sorts of different activities, and some, because they were ready so quickly, came to be known as what? The Minutemen. I thought I'd pick one more because those were all New England. Let's pick one from Virginia. I don't know if anybody's ever been to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, but here, this will be a story of uh, Reverend John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor in Woodstock, Virginia, but in addition to being a pastor, he also served in the House of Burgesses. And if you've ever been to Williamsburg, maybe they let you come and sit where he actually sat. And while he was there, he actually heard a report of the fact that the British troops had fired on Americans and it was obvious that we were headed towards Revolutionary War. Well, then he decided to come back to his own church, and so he comes from kind of the southeastern part of Virginia, rides horseback up to Woodstock, which is up in kind of the northwestern part, gets there Saturday night, and Sunday morning then stands before the congregation and he preaches on Ecclesiastes 3. And when he gets to that part where it says there's a time for war and a time for peace, he begins to now tell the story of, indeed, the fact that the British have fired on the Americans and we are headed to war. And now he then, at the end, this is a painting of that, removes his vestments, and underneath it you can see that he is a soldier in the Revolutionary War. And so he stands at the back of the church and calls for the men in the church to join him, and 300 men in his church join him, and now they fight in the American Revolution. 
It's an interesting story, but not only does John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg get involved in this, but he has a brother by the name of Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, who is a Lutheran pastor in Manhattan Island. And we have the correspondence between them and the kind of conversations we have today, they have there as well. Because Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg says, how dare you? You're a pastor. You're a man of the cloth. You should not be involved politically. And now you're actually joining in the Revolutionary War? Well, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg writes back to Herbert Augustus Muhlenberg, and he says, because I stand for liberty, you're able to stand in your pulpit. Well, that didn't last very long, because all of a sudden the British warships come in. George Washington barely escapes into uh, New Jersey, and all of a sudden he's without a church and without a home, and now he begins to think through a little bit more. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Kirby Anderson's study entitled, One Nation Under God. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on our homepage. Join us here next time for part two of this exciting study with Dr. Pat Zucran.